but the and again like the, from the Thatcher Reagan this is a critical moment in our evolution as a society was when Thatcher and Reagan were in part the in the 1980s um where again something that Thatcher said was that if you reach the age of 30 and you don't own a home and, and, and a car and are married you're a failure just straight into the into you know it, it attacks our capacity for living in different ways for 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 exploring how things could be different how's it going hope you're well dave and steve here and thank you for tuning in we are most grateful welcome to another wonderful episode in our community series which we are very excited about uh, this is something that's deeply core to our heart and this week we get to talk to a wonderful man by the name of Jonathan Dawson. So Jonathan is the head of economics at Schumacher College. And Schumacher College got its name from a gentleman by the name of E.F. Schumacher. And he wrote a book that was possibly my most favorite book when I went to say intelligent. Uh, it was called uh, Small is Beautiful. And I just remember reading that book and it took me ages to read it because it's very complicated. But it was real about like economics as if people mattered. That was the subtitle of it. And I thought that was brilliant. And I think the conversation that we had with Jonathan was kind of it's about empowering us, encouraging more participation. And it, it, it was very much about the current system, which, which we all live in, doesn't seem to be working for many of us. Like it doesn't, it's very individualistic and very competitive. And he says, we're very much a product of this economic system. It's not until we look at it with new eyes that we can start to reinvent it. And he said, what's happened over the last number of months with these like crisis, which has happened with COVID and whatnot. He says, it seems like there's, there's a high potential of a lot more crisis coming. And it's not until we kind of start coming together and working more at local and community levels. And he talked about some really interesting things like community shared ownership and uh, UBI and participation. And it was a really, really fun and interesting conversation. It has me super curious to research lots of ideas. So he's a great man. He lived in Fintorn, which is one of the uh, one of the most famous kind of um, intentional communities. communities. And I loved the idea. You know, when I first heard about Fintorn, it was about this lady who had the ability to commune with the spirits of the plants. And it was through this, she managed to be able to grow cabbages that were 40 pounds <laughs> in uh, size. And Jonathan's also lived in various different other communities and written the Eco Villages kind of network. He was one of the founding members of this. So he, he's very, very interested as an economist that kind of understands the current system with which we all live our lives. And then he's very much, he's experienced living through all these different alternative type li li space places where he's lived in. It, it just produced a wonderful conversation. So I really hope you enjoy it. This is one of the episodes in our community series. So we've done previous episodes. If you haven't listened to them with Helena Norberg Hodge, Dan Butner, and Bruce Parry. So do check them out amongst other ones. So brace yourselves. Let us know on social how you find this. And uh, yeah, enjoy it. Cheers. Cheers. I think that um, it's really useful to observe that there's actually two branches of learning that have almost nothing in common, both of which calling themselves economics. So the dominant one, which is what you studied at college, what dominates academy and uh, the newspapers, is effectively a branch of mathematics. So it's based on the assumption that that which is value is that which passes through the market and gains value in passing through the market. The other discipline, which is what we do here, is a branch of moral philosophy. So it's not making the assumption that GDP or the quantity of stuff passing through the market is equivalent to human societal and, and planetary well-being, but rather that there is necessarily a cultural and a, there are so many other dimensions to prosperity 
of which that which passes through the market is just one. So you're talking about, so this market economics, which is the kind of current totally. format yeah, which is the, doing, the dominant one. Which is based on mathematics. And then the other system is a more philosophical system. Moral-based system. Moral I based love system. that. Completely, completely. And so like the, 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 the question, the question would be like in, in, the, in the course that we're exploring here, the core question is how do we live well and respectfully and beautifully on one finite planet with seven plus billion people? And that's the question. Now, this has something to do with what passes through the market, but there's so many other dimensions. So like if you think of the amount of stuff that passes through the market that does not contribute to well-being, warfare, oil spills, road accidents, obesity leading to employment in hospitals, and how much stuff that is essential for human well-being that doesn't go through the market. So childcare, volunteering, community work. So the idea that somehow what passes through the market, the volume, the sheer ugly, brute volume of what passes through the market with all the shit that you see in the shops is somehow a proxy for measuring our well-being as, an, as individuals and as a society I mean, it's nonsense. Mm. Yeah. How do we change? Like, I love that because like I heard I, I, when I was listening to one of your talks there, you mentioned moving from, you know, currently, if you look at if you divide the developing nations versus the developed nations, we tend to measure it all in GDP as in the amount of transactions that occur in economy. And if there's more transactions and more money in it, the more developed it is versus when you actually start to measure it. I think you called it the happy planet index. Yeah. The top 25 countries, none of them actually make it into the, you know, high yeah. ranking and the, this planetary index that actually measures well-being as opposed to simply economic prosperity. So there's actually tons of, I mean, the first thing is you got to come and do the program here. Then we can really chat. Oh, I'd love to. But the, the, um, the, there's lots of, like the, the, the critique of GDP as a proxy for well-being is it's 50 years old. So the, 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 this isn't new territory. What is new is lots of really interesting plausible ways of measuring well-being that, that it's not that they don't have anything to do with GDP, but where GDP is one, maybe one of a number of indicators, but there's many others. So most famously, the, the mountain kingdom of Bhutan, um, they measure gross national happiness. And there's a myriad different things they include in their calculations there. Um, and it just, like apart from anything else, it, it just, it, it does us the favor of recognizing that we're living inside a story that we'd always assume to be true like so generally when when our finance minister says gdp grew last year they used to say this that of course there's no more growth but they used to say okay our economy grew by 3.7 percent last year and actually they don't have to say anymore because we fill in the rest oh that's a good thing because we're living in this story so it does us the favor of of you know yet again helping us pedal by pedal pull away the illusion that our story is somehow the only possible story. So it's a, it's a, it provides a map for, for, for thinking outside of the box. And the box we're in at the minute is toxic. So we need to get out of the box. And so, so Bhutan is one example. Oh, I love that example. Bhutan, then, because, like, can I? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, you, sorry. I if you go. But uh, Bhutan, so you've got, like, I remember reading up on it because we were super keen to visit a good few years ago. And I was like, I'd love to go. I'd love to learn more and delve into it. And I remember reading that they're the, one of the world's only carbon neutral countries that has a huge link to ecology, the natural world, which was very much linked with Costa Rica. They were two countries which really kind of seemed to prioritize the natural world. 
And, you know, I just found it very interesting anyway. That and then how, how do we as a society, for like anyone listening, like how do we start to change this narrative that we're disconnected from nature? And actually, how do we start to kind of rekindle this sense of, you know, we tend to fundamentally believe we're independent, which we're, which is a total illusion because we're independent from nature, that we are fully interdependent without oxygen, without trees, without anything, we're gone. So like, how do we start to change the narrative? Like as a, as a society, does it start and, with... And it's almost to move it away from GDP, it is, like it is to move it away from GDP into valuing something else. So like a really good place to start is by recognising the way we see the world at the minute is just a story. Like leaving yourself open to the possibility. I mean, in terms of your question was how do how do we change this as a nation? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> knows because it's so deeply entrenched. But a really good starting place is to recognise that it's just a story. Um, beyond that, and I mean, I have to say, I think I'm a natural historian. Like when I come across something new, my first impulse is to look at the historical perspective. Like, what's the long tail of the story? Um, so, and definitely in the, in the case of Ireland, where, where the, the, the pre-Christian and even the early Christian traditions were extremely animistic. You know, the, um, I mean, so many of the great Irish stories, the, 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 the book of invasions with, 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 um, with the, I can't remember what the narrator's name is, but shifting from being a man to being a boar, like shape-shifting to be a boar, to be a, a hawk, to be a salmon, to be a stag. And like the language being beautiful, where like poetically the 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 narrator, you can just feel, my God, that is like deeply deeply felt into what it would be like a salmon and putting words on paper. So definitely in the Irish tradition, there is a long lineage of of stuff that we still have access to uh, because our monks were, you know, during the the age of the land of saints and scholars, that the monks were putting this on paper. Um, although it's really interesting, this is a bit of a, a bit of a sidetrack, but I think find it really funny is that in these stories, great stories, it begins with somebody meeting the bishop and and the bishop saying, you know, tell me your story, and then they're, they're just a straight animistic pagan story, and then at the end, the priest saying, will you become a good Catholic? Oh well, I sure, like just enough for the bishop to be able to say, okay, you can put the story down, but I mean the stories are are animistic stories. Um, beyond that, the only thing I would say is that I think. That, that if we are to get through this bottleneck of history, that the critical terrain in which we need to play is that where political economy meets the arts. So political economy that's looking at global power structures and even national power structures and, and really intelligently asking what are the driving features of our current economic system that so destroys the earth and it impoverishes the many. Like what really are the design features that we need to address? Um, and on the other, the arts bringing together really creative people who are able to take these somewhat abstract high level ideas and translate them into very punchy, accessible, funny, subversive um, messaging using dance theater, I mean, whatever. So I think like for me, that's, that's where, again, it's why the fourth module in our, the, the, the final taught module in our program is changing the frame. It's like, how do, how can we use the disruptive subversive, subversive power of the arts to shock people into seeing the world differently, seeing the world through new eyes? 
So kind of like from what you're saying, it really seems that we've got to start seeing the world differently and changing our narratives. And does this, because there's, there's the collective and we all live in, you know, countries with governments and this type of thing. And like, how do we, like, does it start with us as individuals starting to go, okay, the current economic paradigms, the current kind of cultural stories certainly aren't fulfilling me. They don't seem they're fulfilling the majority. How can we start, you know, creating different stories within our communities? Because, or, or like, how does this happen? Because I know you've obviously delved into this with your work in eco villages and, you know, in Schumacher College. And you've certainly kind of been living in looking for alternative means to kind of to actually experience this. Can you talk about that? Because like, you know, they're, they're big lofty concepts, which we're trying to kind of grab holds of it. But could you even talk about the tangible, like your experience of, of trying to, of living kind of slightly alternative ways and your experience of what seems to be working and what doesn't seem to be working? So let me, before I get around to my own personal experience, like the first answer to the question is it's all hands to the wheel. Like, like it's not as if change, we just need to organize it. Like some people are called into like holding actions into 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 XR into London into climbing into trees and stopping them being knocked down. We need that. Some people are into policy reform, like macroeconomic reform, so that we have the option to actually contract our economies. We need that. Some people are working in transformation of consciousness, particularly in education. We need that. Some people are building the structures of the new. They're building complementary currencies and community supported agriculture. We need that. And we don't need to be looking at each other and saying, I'm the one who's doing the important work and you're not. We need all hands to the wheel. That said, when I look at um, when I look at the history of genuine rapid transition, it rarely comes from the top. It tends to be from below. So I'm thinking, for example, of the civil rights movement in the States. Um you know, and, and this came from this came from mass protests and nonviolent nonviolent protests across the states. And I think that that when I think about pretty much any significant substantial societal transformation, you know, whether it be LGBT, vegetarianism, veganism, Black Lives Matter, civil rights, it tends to come from mass mobilization from below. But I can remember I, I was in Copenhagen for the the, the failed. COP, the climate change conference in 2009, I think it was. And Ed Miliband, who was then the, he was the British representative in Copenhagen. Um, and he was the minister of um, energy and the environment, something like that. And he was very public in saying, get onto the streets. Like we can't act unless we can demonstrate that there is mass support for what we want to do. So I think there are people in each of these spheres in each of these spheres, there are people who um, who who we need to be really playing their best game. Uh, but my when I look at where where the leverage points are for for transformation, I do look at mass mobilisation from below as being a really critical part of the equation. So it's a grassroots kind of it's from the so bottom up, really. Social movements. Um, and, yeah. and when you talk about when you talk about this, like you know the way you're almost like I feel like we're in a movie. You know, we're in a movie and we're, you know, the chips are down and we have to turn this around. And when you're talking like, because I know, like, if mathematics is at the root of economics and you're an economist. One aspect of economics. One aspect the other of economics. Aspect is morality. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, but now I'm doing my best philosophy. here um, But like, like, if you're talking time frames here, like we've all heard that we've got, you know, 
I, I don't know, if you're talking timeframes of us to turn this ship around in terms of the environment, in terms of all this type of thing, what kind of timeframes are we talking? Um, I mean, my own, my own interpretation is, um, of, of how this is going to unfold is like, like the, 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 lever, the, the, the lever that will force us into change is crisis. Like, I don't, I don't think, I think maybe when, when I started teaching this program a decade ago, you know, I kind of had the idea that there was enough in the new economy toolkit that I could, we could actually make a transition. The program was called Economics for Transition. Uh, I now really no longer believe that's the case. I think, like, so one of the, one of the thinkers who I really admire most, a guy called Richard Heinberg, and the phrase that he's using for this particular moment is brace for impact. And I think that's where we are. So I think that what we're doing is, I mean, we need to do the good work of building local resilience anyway, irrespective of how it play, plays out. But my reading of the situation is that we're in the foothills of a mountain range of crises that are going to roll in, in the face of which we will have no choice but to develop more resilient local, locally based systems. And the work we're doing at the minute is getting as much of the infrastructure and the intelligence and the wisdom that we're going to need during that period in place right now. So in other words, I don't see a timeline that we're going to turn this around. I think we're in, we're in totally different waters, we're totally new waters, which may be extinction or it may be a thin down. I mean, who knows? I don't really, really even want to. Is it time to build a bunker? Well, not build a bunker, exactly the opposite, because you're only as resilient as your nearest neighbor. And if you're nearest, I love it. I love it. We're growing, we're growing lots of food in my community. <laughs> but, you know, if the, if the ships start coming, if the ships stop coming in and the, the planes stop flying, you know, our neighbors have got guns. <laughs> so the, the object is not to build resilience. In fact, I wrote a book chapter a few years ago called From Islands to Networks. A history of the eco-village movement, where I um, like the, the core point I made was that was it 20, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, like Findhorn, for example, was based in Scotland, but it wasn't a Scottish community. And the great majority of communities had very little relationship to their hinterlands. Um, whereas today that's all changed. And this this chapter, this book chapter that I wrote was recording the various ways in which eco-villages have become, I use the metaphor of yogurt culture, that actually the, the yogurt culture is spilled out of the can. And actually the, the regions in which eco-villages are based now tend to be very distinctively different because there's so many people living there who maybe came for Findhorn, they came to the region because of Findhorn, but now they're living in the area and they're doing great community-supported agriculture or community recycling schemes or community investment schemes, real proliferation of innovation happening all over the place. And um, so the point is exactly not to build a bunker, but to build networks of mutual aid. Wow. I love that. It's a, it's a sense of it's a time to reach out for our neighbors and support one another so that we can, we as a species can be more resilient at the foothills of the mountains of change. We are going to need them. We are absolutely going to need them. And like, if you think about it, like the, the role of the Cayley House, like you, anyway, I've read, I've read academic stuff on this, but the role of the Cayley House was to, it was that the community needed each other and you just couldn't fall out. And so the role of the Cayley House was to have a place at the end of the week where people would go and have a few beers and do some dancing, do some singing and build the social glue that they needed because they needed each other in a way that we don't need each other today but we are going to need each other again very soon. 
Wow. I love that, the sense of necessity because... So, so, so are you... Can I... Oh, yeah, yeah, you go for it. Yeah, like yeah. so much of modern day society is so individualistic and celebrate the individual, you know, whereas we're all products of our environment and we tend to, you know, the common cultural narrative is about the individual, about disconnections. We're separate from nature. You know, if someone's a famous footballer, they're the best football or, player. Or even back to us, like people will often say to us, geez, well done for all that you've done in the happy pair. And you kind of go. Oh, thanks a million. You know, the, the ego inside you goes, thanks a million. But really, it's been the work of every single person that's helped us and our parents and our friends and our family and everyone. And we just happen to be the ones out front. The point of the spear. And it's like, it's moving beyond that narrative, isn't it? That sense of realizing the intrinsic interdependence of life. Totally. And like, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to put my academic category. I'm, I'm aware that I'm talking about books and thinkers. And, and that's, that's who I am. So I'm going to bring it in. Is... Um, that the, the, the dominant narratives and stories and language that we use to describe our situation today were born in the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century in England. So survival of the fittest, scarcity, the fight for life. Competition. Competition, the individual, like, like selection happening at the level of the individual. This is 19th century biology uh, that used the language that, I mean, the 19th century in England was a really tough place, like the English working classes, I, I mean, the, the British, the, the European, but certainly the English working classes suffered mightily. And this was a period where language of survival of the fittest and the individual and scarcity were entirely appropriate. Everything we know about 20th and 21st century biology is the supreme place of symbiosis, meaning collaboration between species and that actually selection happens at the basis not of the individual but of the of the the species and particularly their ability to cooperate with other species so what makes us distinctive and you know this is not it's an easy story to tell but it's actually based on biological the inside the biological sciences is that the one thing that is deeply distinctive about our species that has made us so successful is our unique capacity for cooperation outside of the gene pool. And it is exactly our capacity for cooperation that is that this is the new story that we need to, I mean, it's not just a story. I mean, it is just a story and it's true, <laughs> but this is who we are as a species. And it's totally contradicting. This is the reason why, you know, levels of mental illness and, and antidepressants and suicides and all the rest of it and drug abuse is so much down to living in a system where the language and the structures are based on a false reading of the human condition. Wow, of individualism and, you know, of all this type of thing. And what you're saying is, though, what you're kind of almost like possibly, a po one possible outcome in the future, now it looks pretty possible, is that like, you know, lots of crises will come. As you said, we're at the bottom of the foothills of the mountain and there's going to be these various crises like what's been going on over the last year and a half with coronavirus are going to come and we just need to stop focusing on our, like, like when I look at ourselves, we're so busy in our own work because as the kind of the middle, middle class of an economy, we all seem to have to be pedaling faster to just stay afloat because we all want to buy a house or some of us want to buy a house and geez, I want a nice car. Jeez, a holiday would be great too. That we're all so busy kind of trying to keep up with one another that you know it's probably not until there's a mass crisis that we kind of go oh jesus we're fucking lunatics why don't we just slow down and start working more together uh, and cooperating more i don't Is know that... I, I don't know okay can i take it on another tangent this, I'm, this I'm raising, is lovely I'm, and philosophical i'm, I'm loving I'm, this I'm deep really philosophical this. okay note. so 
To me, it seems like it's a poverty of spirit and it's something that Ooh, is often disconnected. Stephen. Like, I'm fascinated the fact that you made it, that, that there's a, a branch in economics. There's one that the mathematical aspect of economics and then the other side is the more philosophical morality aspect of um, economics. And I, I remember one of my favorite books um, ever was Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. And I remember that was just it. it the idea of Buddhist economics and the idea of, you know, right livelihood and this type of thing, I, I thought was absolutely fascinating. But it, it seems to me like even talking to Brendan, this wonderful man that we're speaking Irish with, and he talked about how, you know, God was just a part of the of the dialect. And it wasn't God like this removed thing. It was God that was in us all and a part of us all. And this kind of sense of, as you mentioned, this kind of animal animalistic. Is that the word for animalism. the kind of animalism? A animalism. animalism. Animism. animism, animism. Okay, that sense of animism that we are much more connected in this sense of um, that. But it, it seems like modern day culture celebrates the individual. It celebrates materialism. It celebrates greed and competition. But it, it's kind of at the cost of the sense of the spirit, the spirit that connects us all. And like earlier on, I, I, I mentioned about Findhorn and this lady who could talk with the spirits of the plant. But it seems like that we as individuals have lost in many ways, you know, this sense of spirit and wonder and the sense of magic mysticalness of life. There was a period, I've been here for 10 years at Schumacher College, which is named, of course, after E.F. Schumacher of Smallest Beautiful Fame. Um, and there was a period where we had a lot of indigenous wisdom teachers from around the world, you know, North American, Siberian, Australian, on and on and on. And one of the things that uh, really struck me was that the, uh, they pretty much all said, you've got this story that somehow you've lost the connection to the other than human world, but you haven't. Like, all you've got to do is just shut up and listen. And then feeling that actually very striking, they were very struck, some of them were very struck by just how much power and energy they felt in the land here in Devon. And, um, you know, my, my feeling is that if we are... And we are, but if we are products of this earth, like we are, we're manifestations of the creative process. How could, like, how would it be possible that we could irretrievably become separated from it? You know, again, multiple studies showing that when people do spend time forest bathing or, you know, in the forest, in nature, even when people are in hospital, like studies comparing those who can see a tree out of the window and those who can't looking at their different, how much longer they live, how happier they are. It is clear that we are woven, we are part of the fabric. And so given that, I just don't see, I, I can see how we can be, we've been mangled and dislocated by our, by our systems at the moment that really are creating a disconnect. But I just don't, I, I just cannot see how that could be an irretrievable, an irretrievably unmendable phenomenon that's something that we can that's a part of us that's just there we've just almost forgotten that we we're not listening we're not listening we're too busy like that we're not listening yeah we're too busy trying to buy stuff and get stuff and look outside of ourselves whereas if we could but how would it be how would it be if if um the main like what are the main needs so if if um if transport so at the minute, the focus is very much on the individual. So we're looking at, we need, to, we need to dramatically change. We need to revolutionize our systems to, to use much less fossil fuel energy. So being stuck in the individualistic frame 
the answer becomes electric vehicles, electric private cars. Now, if you do that, you basically got to use all of Latin America and most of Africa as mines for cobalt and lithium and the other elements that we need, which are currently under indigenous lands. Whereas if you, like another way of looking at it, where you stop thinking less, in, in, you, you think less individualistically, is you revamp public transport so that actually people don't need private vehicles. So like, how would it be if we revamped our systems, also brought in a universal basic income? Not sure if you've talked about that on your on your. No, not no. at all. Because 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 a friend recently told us that in Wales they're trialing a universal basic income. Many, many countries are experimenting with. It, but could, could you tell us a little bit we, about that? Because uh, could you could you tell me two things? Can I interrupt you briefly? One thing, because I know you said you haven't owned a car for fifteen years and you're part of some carpooling thing. Could you talk about how that works and okay and the benefits of it? I, and and then I also want to talk about sorry. Okay, good. we're getting excited here. Sorry. Just to complete the, the final thought. That if we shifted the balance towards communal wealth rather than individual wealth, so you had affordable housing, and there's many ways we can do this. You had public transport. You've got fabulous public libraries. You've got great swimming pools. You've got great all the rest of it, and you introduce the UBI. People don't need to work nearly as hard. People don't want, to, don't want to work nearly as hard as they're doing at the moment, but they don't have a choice to pay the rent. But there's many ways that we could have public provision of many of these goods together with the universal basic income. Um, this sounds amazing. How do I I'm in. Jonathan for president. Here, here, Jonathan <laughs> well, for president. I that mean, sounds wonderful. Like Truly, it's not that there's a whole swathe. I mean, it tends to be associated with the Green Party. Many of these policies are party policies, but there is a whole, this isn't, this isn't Jonathan for, I mean, for sure, but this is not Jonathan for president. This is Jonathan giving voice to a very strong uh, philosophy and, and series of proposals that are just not really in the newspapers because the dominant story is here and it's over here. In terms of carpooling, uh, I mean, actually, two years ago, I bought a car for the first time in 2020. Oh! I love it. I love it. <laughs> However, it's not, not the real point. The main point is um, that, so I live in, in a community where we have carpools, we have bicycle pools, we've got a shared laundry, we've got shared land, we grow, we grow food, we've got common tools. And um, just a wee story like, okay, the, the, this we branch that, that's linked into Findhorn is I commissioned an ecological footprint study of Findhorn. You aware what that is? It's no, like, I'd imagine it's like checking It's out. a composite measure of how much resource we were consuming for each different country and how much waste we're generating. And so like, it's kind of shocking. So we know from ecological footprint analysis that if everyone to have, was to have the lifestyle of the average Irishman, Irish woman, we'd need three and a half planets. If it is North American, you need five planets. So we're just way over the budget. So I did, a, I commissioned a study of Findhorn, like what is the per capita, the, for each individual, what's the average footprint of the average Findhornian? And the results were, startling it was like less than half the national average and um and uh, so th th this is the interesting bit is i presented these findings in findhorn and people were really skeptical like the findhorners were really skeptical so the first question was you know it can't have been a, this is obviously propaganda it can't have been a fully professional it was the stockholm environment institute like the leading footprint organization so then somebody would say yeah but the sample can't have been we worked for months on the sample what are you talking about 
but it can't have included the, the, the guests' footprints, you know, the travel to get to Fintorn. It did! And this kind of went on for a while. I started sitting there going, what is happening here? And the conclusion I came to, and I'm sure I checked it out with people, and they said, yeah, you, you, you nailed it, is that people associate having a low footprint with suffering. And their own experience of life was really high quality of life. Nobody needed, or nobody, very few people needed television because the, what was happening outside the front door was so much more interesting. And so I think this is the, this is the real, this is, what, this is what we really need to bring. It, like, this is, we're not talking about hair shirts. We're not talking about sacrifices. We're talking about really retuning back into who we are as a species and what floats our boats. And it is not buying the latest, whatever gizmo it might be, it is reconnecting with people and finding a place to participate in your home community. That's beautiful. I, I love that. I really, really do. You're hitting the nail on the head. And when we go back to the Jonathan for president bit, you gave like a beautiful kind of like you gave a vision. You painted a vision of where we could move towards. And you talked about a number of different things. Could you talk more about that? Because like, you know, we talked about that there's impending crisis and there's plenty of doom and gloom, and we need to get ready for, you know, whatever the hell's coming and we need to focus on localization. But like you kind of briefly summarized a few different things, like as in carpooling, shared tools, you talked about a few things in your community. And universal basic income. Yeah, could you not talk about poss- some possible solutions? Because like what you're talking about is like you've lived in these worlds for years. You're so used to this language. And like we're kind of a hybrid that's been reading about this for years, but we live in, you know, a normal town and whatever. Now it's a cool town and all. Um Please and thank you. <laughs> I, I didn't solve my question there, but can you talk about all that stuff and give us a vision? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, so you, you have to, we everywhere is certainly in the industrialized world, like in the, in the, in in Europe, in North America, in Australia, an explosion of innovation and creativity in community-based activities. So, I mean, I've already mentioned complementary currencies, community currencies that people are able to trade with each other without using the national money, farmers markets, um, uh, community-based agriculture, carpooling. Like there's so many different forms of organization that are already happening. And the experience here is that people are not just learning to provide for their own needs, but they're finding a way of moving from being passive consumers to being active participants in their life and in their provisioning. So like, it seems to me already that, um, that this experience, um, I'm just going to take just a slight deviation is I wrote this paper for, we had a big conference at Fintorn called um, New Story Summit. And I wrote a piece for that where I said that I was surrounded by people who were kind of, who were concentrating, decreasing their brow and really concentrating, trying to work out what's the new story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, asking rhetorically, you know, as the shit increasingly hits the fan, do I want to be surrounded by people who have intellectually worked out the new story or people who've got a living embodied experience of doing things differently? And of course it's the latter. So like at a grassroots level, a ton of innovation, which is creating vegetables, it is generating renewable energy, it is enabling people to buy shares in their own community initiatives. But more importantly, I think at least as important, is, is giving people the experience of working together and 
and having a form of democracy that is actually meaningful rather than the once every four or five years ticking up a box. And so that means local kind of political structures. Or commons. I think it's the commons, isn't it? Oh, yeah, this yeah, idea. But we're not really familiar with that word. No, I'm not so really. I, I, I just listened to you speak about it a couple of times and I was like, I like that. That sounds great. The sense of moving from the sense of passive voting every few years and this kind of idea of democracy to this common idea where we're actively participating in our community and really trying to build a sense of coercive togetherness that we're, you know, working on utopia every day. Yeah, yeah. utopia. Totally. Cool. Totally. Totally. I'd vote for you for president. <laughs> <laughs> but before we have our presidential election, could, could you talk about universal basic income, Jonathan, and uh, bring us up to date with that? Because we're kind of like, don't really know much about it other than it sounds like free money. <laughs> I don't have to work so much. So universal basic income. So our current welfare systems are, I mean, they're great. They, they, they save a lot of misery, but... They're large, uh, bureaucratic, top-down organizations that, that a lot of the money is spent in simply doing the vetting and the employing the people who are, who, like the, the, whole, the whole funding the bureaucracy that decides who gets and who doesn't get. There's a lot of the money that, that is spent by welfare systems that goes in the administration. So the idea is that a universal basic income is that everybody in the country would earn a basic income that would be just enough to enable them not to work if they chose not to work. So the funding of that would come from the saving you've already, you already get from releasing the bureaucracy associated with the current system, together with a recognition that there are many things that the government does that corporations benefit from. So real networks, road networks, um, I mean, tons of government-funded, taxpayer-funded services that currently businesses are getting for free. So the idea that, you know, whether it's closing the tax loopholes so that the, so that, so that actually government is getting much more revenue than it currently is. Uh, and a number of other, I mean, I'm not, it's a whole range of different funding scenarios, which are realistic that could fund this. The, uh, so that, that all citizens are gaining an income from the commonwealth. So the wealth is not owned individually, increasingly it's owned communally, collectively, and that from the revenue generated by that funding, there could or should, in most cases, be enough to give people a basic income. Now, the really interesting thing is that the first impulse to this tends to be, yeah, but if you give people, if you give everybody an income, they're just going to smoke dope and play on their game board. It's really demoralizing rather than anything else. All of the studies that I'm aware of contradict that. So there's one big study, big pilot that was done in Canada. And there were only two categories of people who worked less. The one was boys who stayed, stayed for an extra couple of years at school, rather than leaving at 14, 15, they would stay until their A-levels. And the other category was a woman of young children who stayed longer with their children, not, sorry, this is parents, it's not women, it's parents, choosing to stay with their kids longer rather than going straight back to work. So, you know, this is, very much socially beneficial in both in both cases, and then the others, rather than they would they would do work that they love doing. So rather than doing the crap jobs at the call centres or you know whatever the, the mindless, the brilliant guy called David Graeber, who created the We Are the Ninety Nine, he was a, kind of the brains behind the Occupy movement. We are the ninety nine percent. He created that, and his latest book is just called Bullshit Jobs, and he reckons it's 
the, the demoralizing impact of most people getting up in the morning and not believing that their work is contributing in any significant way to societal well-being, which is true. Uh, so the idea of the idea of releasing the need to do bullshit jobs in order to liberate time to do work that you love to do is a much better indicator of societal well-being than GDP. This like this ties like there's so many bits I want to talk to you about this, but this ties in. We interviewed Dan Butner, who was a guy who founded the Blue Zones. You know, the the, the Blue Zones is the five areas in the world where there's the most amount of the longest living people, and he did this research over many years and found these five areas. And then it kind of spurred him on to look at the five areas of the world where there's the happiest places. He called it Blue Zones of Happiness, and he spent time in Copenhagen and he looked at. Denmark and the more Scandinavian societies versus more a North American society and kind of deduce that in in like Copenhagen, for example, or Denmark, where there seemed to be, you know, there was a lot of basic costs were hit. Like there was, you know, there was there was certain more societal costs were were covered that people tended to do work that was more meaningful and people exactly. were less interested in self-centered exactly. kind of things and were more exactly. interested in. Totally. artistic and you know design totally. oriented things that's exactly the point so you you cap the cost of housing lots of ways you can do it government intervenes to cap rents and and property prices uh you then have public provision of brilliant swimming pools and libraries denmark is just it's so rich in public wealth and it means that people don't need to go out and earn vast amount of money to meet the basic costs it's a, it's called civilized society Wow, that's the Jonathan for president. It's actually called civilized society. I've just, I've just decided. <laughs> okay, that's the oh, Okay, listen, yeah, I like. That. Where do we vote for you, Jonathan? This is brilliant. But uh, so, 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 like, how much do we get when we vote for you? Like, how much do we get each month? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you know, when you're talking about these experiments, like, I know there's one in Wales at the moment. Like, how much do people get a month, and how does how do we start? How do we like? Does this happen at a at a kind of centralized government level, or does this happen at a more commons area? Like, how does how do we shift from this current, you know, centralized government and this kind of? And also, how much will we get a month? I'm okay, just, I'm genuinely yeah, yeah, curious. Okay. Like, is it a hundred euro, five hundred euro, a thousand euro, two thousand euro? I don't know. There's lots of different different schemes and different pilots going on at the minute. The the the, the granddaddy is the Alaska Permanent Fund, where they they put aside a certain amount of money that came from their oil revenue that, and out of which a dividend is paid to all the citizens every year. Similar in Norway, they've got a similar fund. In some cases, like in the case of Norway and Alaska, it's not nearly enough to live on, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tidy supplement. Um, other cases have gone for something that is based on what they reckon to be a livable wage. Uh, there's a whole range of experiments. Uh, do a, just do a, do a, do a search do an online search on UBI experiments. There's tons of, in fact, in fact, one of my students three years ago wrote his dissertation on a typology of UBI types of all the different types of UBI, um, which was then taken by the RSA, the Royal Society of the Arts, and published as one of their papers. So if you look for the author, is Charlie Young. Good man, Charlie. And um, yeah, he he went from a student dissertation to like a major think tank picking up his work and 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 asking him to refine it and and it's there in the public record. Wow, Jeez. cool. Okay, so we've got okay. So these are some tools for building a better world. We've got the potential of UBI sounds great, where we don't have to do meaningless bullshit jobs, as you call them. Shared tools, shared caring, cultivating more common 
you know, wealth in terms of, you know. Hey, instead of celebrating the wealth of the individual, celebrate the wealth of the community and to have it more shared out and less disparity between those who have and those who have less. Totally. And and just one, like, just to, if I can paint a wee picture here, is um, like, like something we got a lot on this island, and I suspect you have in yours as well, is local pubs and um, community centres, shops closing down because there's just not enough trade. So one of the one of the very practical, tangible options is to create a cooperative where community members chip in and they become the owners of the resource. And so you've got cool. so imagine imagine a pub or a leisure center or whatever the facility might be or a library that is actually owned by the residents of the community. And there's 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 pretty generous European and other funding to enable this to happen. Community share ownership, it's called, to enable the community to take control of its. I mean, this was all the way up in, particularly in Denmark and Germany, they've really pioneered municipal, the citizens in a municipality taking back control of their water, their utility resources, their energy, water. So they then make the decision as a group of future policy, for example, how much renewable energy they're going to use or whatever the policy might be regarding the particular resource in question. But the community participating, for me, the key word at the minute that's lacking is participation. We are not invited to participate in the making of our lives in any meaningful sense outside of our nuclear families. And much of like the common factor of most of what we're talking about is the communities taking back control over their key resources. I love that. And that's the idea, the common. Like, you just look at community, do again, do a search on community, community share offers and tons of examples of communities that are now learning to cooperate, learning to work with each other in the management of community resources. And this is the comment. That's a brilliant idea, like the community shared ownership and, you know, coming up with decent co-op schemes of how to take over various buildings within the community and put them to community value as opposed to commercial purposes. Same. And if you look at the, like, I'm sure you've heard of the transition movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we talked to Rob Hopkins. He's brilliant. Great. So, so he, so, so the, the transition movement is all about doing exactly this. It's providing a community within which people can inspire each other to do exactly this kind of stuff. I love this. Jeez, I find my mind is, yeah. <laughs> you know, grasping for things to hold on to. Clutching at straws, yeah. But the, but the co-op thing is a brilliant idea of how to take over community, you know, and make things more relevant. And but but it's it's not until we can come up with something like a UBI that people will actually slow down, because I think we're all moving so fast that we're not realizing like we are moving so fast just to thread water in the current economic climate that like, sure, we're all killing nature, but sure, it'll be grand. Like when I get the new iPhone, I'll be fine. Sure, then I can take photos better. For, you know, like it's it, a re-priority -pri seem to be shifting so much that I, I think it's not until we can actually slow down well, that I'm, we can. I mean, if we wait until, you, if we wait, if we say we can do nothing until this happens, you know, we're, we're waiting a long time. I think a way of killing two birds with one stone here is wrong, wrong metaphor. There's a way we can achieve two complementary things. <laughs> I like that. Which is that, that, again, something I learned so much from my time in Africa. Like, there's so, and in fact, when I'm talking to people who are involved, I'm meeting people for the first time who are involved in radical new economy activism, I'm waiting for them to say, of course, I spent two years in Guatemala or Cambodia or Ghana, or I'm kind of waiting for that. Such an important learning ground. And um, a big thing 
Where was it going with that? Oh, yeah. learning ground in what way? Like, just, as in? Just so, there's so much, there's so many, like, I think for me, it was the first moment where I realised I was living in the story because I was living in a culture that had totally had different stories and just um, whole different priorities. Let, let me give you just an example here, um, which is that the, the elderly in Africa, I mean, the elders are just deeply respected and have a critical role to play in the, in the, in the governing and the well-being of their societies, they're they're looked up to. They can they 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 look forward to becoming older because when they become elders, there's just so much respect is given to them. And um, so frequently, the kids, at least in the rural areas, are brought up not by the biological parents, but either by elder siblings or by the elders. So the elders are woven deeply into the community in a way that we have forgotten how to do. So how many of our elders are abandoned and isolated and lonely and, and not respected? So the idea, again, when I think of communities that are doing, that are creating community wealth, one of the things that's come to, and this is Findhorn and Totnes and many other pioneering communities as well, is the elders are getting really stuck in. So you've got elders there who have careers in business, in in you know, right across the economy and society, they're sitting on a ton of, of experience and wisdom that we're simply not drawing upon. Wow, yeah, so it really is kind of going that, you know, there's a whole section of society that is so much more experienced than the young and even the middle young and uh, kind of ha- you looking at systems and how we can actually... I love that idea that what's required is participation. I think that's the word that I'm going to take from this today and just like... Imprinted on my eyelids, participation, get involved. Well, you're good at participating. I think, I think if I, that's really good to hear because if I was to say, if you were to ask me, give me one word that we need to take away, it would be participation. Wow. And it's participation within writing, creating new stories within our own ways of living, ways of living in our own towns and communities and lives because, you know, the current stories just aren't fulfilling our needs in so many ways. Right. Like I think it's at every level, like, like this thing called participatory democracy, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but the idea that somehow our democratic participation should be limited to putting a cross in a box every few years, it, I mean, it, it, it demeans us. It doesn't call on our intelligence and wisdom and passion. Uh, there was one night in Findhorn, snowy February night, it was way below zero, and the local shop, the community shop, had lost money, I think, for the pre- three previous years. And I'm no businessman, but I'm told that if that happens generally, the, the wisdom is you shut down the shop. And the shop belongs to all of us. We all, there were 250 of us who had shares in the shop. Right? I had £250 in the shop, so I was a co-owner of the shop. So basically what happened to the shop was our decision. There was nobody else going to make that decision. And in this cold, windy, wintry, Scottish dream night, um, about 200 people gathered in, in this community space to decide to discuss how we were going to, what we were going to do. And, and, um, and it was, I mean, the, the meeting was, it was one of the highlights, the most exciting things that happened because some people said, well, we can, we've got a discount there because we're, because we're, we're co-owners, but we're going to release our discount or we can advance 5,000 pounds or, yeah, or, I mean, whatever. There were so many different responses that were, we can, this is our shop, we're not going to lose it and, and we are going to participate in its salvation, its rescue. And it's still there. Cool. 
And everyone just came together, started work together to come up with a solution because it was a necessity for the community. Totally. Wow. Yeah. So essentially it's community empowerment. Jeez, Jonathan, you're brilliant. Thank you. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of left. I'm kind of, you know, clutching at words. You I know, wrote like, down loads of things. I, I got lots of reading. Elders getting stuck in. I like the sense Community the shared ownership. Co-op. Look into co-ops. Charlie Young and his typologies of UBI experiments. That sounds really cool. A living wage. Um, yeah. And bullshit jobs. Try to get rid of them. Sounds great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. And, and I just, my gifts as a storyteller are taken into this realm and and all I'm doing is I'm sort of drawing on it. That's interesting. Here and that fits here. And new pattern emerges here. I've actually got a colleague, like I've got colleagues here. There's a guy I teach with called uh, Jay Tunt. He actually does this stuff. I sort of read the books and think about it and, and observe and see the patterns. He's actually on the ground doing stuff. So like he's the hero. I'm, I'm the rapporteur. Wow, wow, you do a great job at it. And for anyone listening who'd love to know more about Schumacher College, I wonder if you could talk. We went and visited back a few years ago just because I remember reading Satish Kumar's book and always being curious about E.F. Schumacher and the whole college is kind of about built in with the ecology in a sense of kind of creating a new new paradigm. So there's a few, I mean, it's a, it's a dream place to work. It's a, you know, it's, it is the end of my life story. It's, I mean, I'm nowhere near the end of my life story, but I'm in the place where there's nowhere else left to go. It's just, it is, I think God's gift to education is brilliant. The things that are different about it compared to what you'd learn, and this is not just true of economics, it's like true across the board. It's like this one thing is that the starting point is ecology. The starting point is how do other than human systems work? So kind of the, the core hypothesis here, it's only a hypothesis, it's not a, it's not a dogma but the core hypothesis is that the gulf between is, is that at the core the common root of all the various crises converging in our civilization are due to the gulf between how other than human systems self-organize and how human systems are organized and that we've deviated from from drawing on natural design principle wisdom so that's one a second thing is that the education is community-based so rather than it being some sort of individualistic competitive scheme where you're competing against your peers um, for the highest marks, it's very collaborative. So a lot of the, a lot of the research is, 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 is uh, team-based. Um, and it means that um, you know, the students and the staff together are working in the garden, harvesting, cooking the food, um, it's it's what the Indian Indians would call an ashram based system. Like a, a, it, it's a, they're kind of secular ashrams. This ashram being the Indian Gandhian concept of a whole person learning center. So do so do people people who attend Schumacher College do they live in the grounds? They do. They do. The great majority actually live here. Yeah. Wow. And then the final thing, which I think is maybe the most radical of all, and which I'm most passionate about, is that, again the conventional story is that our only source of intelligence and learning is the intellect, and that effectively the body is just a vehicle for carrying around the brain. And there's a growing wealth of, of, um, uh, of, of, of research evidence that suggests that actually the emotion, emotions and intuition, and particularly the body, are critical sources of new intelligence. So, for example, um, one of the things that we do here as part of the economics course is a solo 
overnight fasting vigil in the forest. Now, wow, where's the link between economics and that? So is, I love that. Why, where's why? Where's the economics? Now? The economics comes in because scarcity. <laughs> what we're trying to, to do is we're trying scarcity. to we're trying to open up our we're trying to to a new story, a new way of relating to the other than human world. Like, can we be in kinship with rather than treating it just as a source of, of raw materials? Now, to do that, you can sit in a library and study ecology, and our students do that. And it's a really important part of the process. But if you only sit in the library, your body is not involved in the learning process. Your emotions are not involved in the learning process. You're learning facts. Whereas if you go with an empty belly into the forest and spend a night attuning to the forest, you will remember that experience a lot longer. It will impact you much, much greater, much, much, much more than if you simply limit yourself to sitting in the library studying principles of biomimicry or ecological design principles. And so this idea of that it's the thinking and the study is not just about things that are out there, but are deeply inviting our own subjectivity into the frame and say, and really asking how does, how does my whole person, my body, my emotions, my intuition, my intellect, how are they, can we engage these all in the learning process? So it's very much, it's what we call a pedagogy of head, heart, and hands. And, um, and we, need, we need all three. So it really, is, it really is the epitome of participation in a sense, because it's not just participation of the head, it's like bringing your body and your heart and your spirit and all those very things to it. Totally. Yeah. Back to the word of the day is participation. <laughs> not just Correct. Or, I or love you. it. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm lit up and I'm kind of grasping for words, but it's and been I want really to go enlightening. More on a good few topics here now, so, and I really can't wait to go to Schumacher College again, and I look forward it's to meeting been, you one day. It's been a real ball. I, I just, uh, I love, and the fact that it's in in Ireland as well that I'm kind of heading back to roots. Uh, I've had a real fun conversation. So thanks a lot. Participation, participation, participation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Jonathan, I found to be super refreshing, just wonderful. Universal basic income. That sounds really interesting. I'm sure there's loads of like pros and cons with all these type of things, but it sounds really, really interesting because I really do feel it. And there was a period back about 10 years ago, I remember where we were fascinated about getting a wind turbine and trying to create this sense of community energy. Uh, we didn't get much beyond having but, a few but meetings I, about it. But I really think there's so much opportunity when community shared ownership and how we can actually get back into the commonwealth, that original word of how we can get more money, less into the individual and more into making our current systems work more for us in a participatory manner. Anyway, I find that fascinating. I hope you did. Thank you for making it this far. We are most grateful. Um, if you haven't checked out our other episodes on community, we're loving this series. We're learning so much. We really, for us, it's the grassroots of how we can kind of help make the world a better place so if you haven't listened to them please do check them out and once again we are most grateful let us know on social media how you found us uh share tag us on a on an instagram post and we'll reshare it because we really do want to get story. the word out there oh instagram story yeah thanks sorry yeah okay. anyway sending loads of love uh thanks Mel, for listening wishing you a great day ahead and here's to more participation Woo! cheers bye <laughs>